Hi there. Welcome to another episode of the Pacific Wayfinder. I'm Ben Bohane. Well, there are a few more pressing issues we all face than global warming and the impacts of climate change, especially for the Pacific Islands. Today, I'm honoured to have Professor Mark Howden and Dr George Carter to talk about the upcoming release of the next report from the United Nations IPCC, the Intergovernment Panel on Climate Change. This is considered the world's peak body on climate change science. Professor Mark Howden is Vice Chair of the IPCC and is perhaps the most senior Australian scientist engaged with global bodies like the IPCC around climate change science. Mark is also the director of the new Institute for Climate, Energy and Disaster Solutions, known as ICEDS, here at the Australian National University. Joining us is Dr George Carter, co-director of the Pacific Institute and a research fellow in geopolitics and regionalism at the Department of Pacific Affairs at ANU. George has a long history in diplomacy and education across the Pacific and holds a chiefly title in his home country of Samoa. Welcome to you both. Hi. Thank you very much. Now, this is the first of three planned podcasts we'll be doing with the ICEDS group here at ANU in order to communicate their work and the latest findings of the IPCC reports to our Pacific family. Over coming months, there are a couple of major climate initiatives happening to focus global attention. Firstly, next month in August, we'll see the release of the latest IPCC report from what is known as Working Group 1 which is focused purely on the physical science of what's happening. Then in November, we have the COP26 meeting in Glasgow. So in this first collaboration with ISADS, it's worth talking about the work they do, as well as the evolution of the United Nations IPCC group, what goes into their reports, and why they are so important. Professor Howden, before we get into who the IPCC is and how they prepare their reports, I wanted to start with a sense of urgency about the situation. Already we're getting some advance notice about what is contained in the upcoming report due to be released next month. And it sounds quite sobering. The best global scientists are saying we are running out of time and the situation may be worse than expected. So how serious is the trajectory we're on right now? Uh, thanks, Ben. Like, I think it's fair to say that it is very serious. Um, in a sense, the more we know about climate change, the more the science community gets concerned. Uh, in a sense, the more we know, the worse it looks. And just one example is that the uh, impacts of climate change are accumulating almost day by day. Uh, just a very recent example is the Canadian heat waves and bushfires, uh, which have a climate signal embedded in them. And, and if we look more broadly, we can see uh, linkages to droughts, linkages to um, floods. Uh, of course, there's heat waves associated with climate change. And really importantly for the Pacific Islands, a sea level rise. And so we see that accumulating day by day, year by year. And in particular, in relation to temperatures, uh, what uh, it looks like we're doing is heading towards 1.5 degrees, which is the lower of the current Paris Agreement targets. 
uh, and that could happen as early as the early um, 2030s. And so um, previous estimates of where we would get there were actually about a decade later. So as we accumulate the evidence and as climate change accelerates, uh, that day when we hit 1.5 is getting closer and closer. Dr. George, does the IPCC have much of a profile in the Pacific? How do you think its work is perceived in the region? Thank you very much, um, Ben. IPCC's uh, profile in the Pacific um, is contained into uh, very close circles, especially within academia, um, especially around the sciences, and also those working around climate change policy. Um, first, IPCC reports are for many Pacific countries are an important source of uh, scientific information um, on in terms of uh, climate impacts in the Pacific. It informs um, the way that uh, our research is also conducted, especially now in terms of um, the humanities and where we should be uh, focusing our research areas in terms of the impacts on human behavior, on community behavior, uh, state behavior, and also regional behavior. And this is something uh, that's fundamental into the current new research that we're looking to here at uh, uh, not only at the Australian National University, but also various uh, universities around the Pacific. So listening to Professor Howden there talk about, you know, we're rapidly moving towards 1.5 degrees. How concerning is that to you and, and do you think to the Pacific community? Look, the urgency has been something many Pacific Island countries have been calling for since the 1980s. So this is nothing new. Um, the urgency is now. Um, it, it, a lot of uh, the actions or, uh, we've been waiting for um, have not been undertaken. Um, in terms of uh, states' responsibility in, sort of, uh, in mitigation practices, but also in terms of uh, financing, in terms of uh, to support the adaptation. Professor Howden, let's, let's go back to basics and understand when and how the IPCC was formed. And is it fair to say that this really is the peak body of climate scientists in the world? Yeah, thanks, Ben. Um, IPCC was formed in 1988. It was formed by the World Meteorological Organization and the United Nations Environment Program, and it was endorsed by the UN General Assembly. So there's extraordinarily high-level uh, involvement of the governments of the world in terms of the formation of the IPCC, uh, but also in the continuation of the IPCC. So every government around the place is actually part of the IPCC. So the governmental in the name actually reflects that it's actually owned by the governments, not owned by the science community. And that's a really important point because not only is the IPCC in the sense the peak scientific body, which brings together the scientific understanding and the best scientists, but is actually the peak process associated with climate change science and understanding. And that's because it is that partnership between the governments and the researchers, the science community. And, and that allows us not only to do good science and synthesise that science, but for that to be owned by the governments. And so they actually internalise it in the process rather than it coming in from outside, in which case sometimes governments don't tend to accept it, they tend to reject it because it is externally sourced. So picking up on that, does that mean that it has sort of more credibility going, you know, being something that's formulated 
on behalf of governments as opposed to independent organizations? Do you think there's more credibility in the fact that this, this is a government-led initiative? Indeed. So it's, it's, there's the credibility factor in the governments, but also in the science community itself, uh, that it's actually seen as a very legitimate process, but also in terms of the public. And so, so the public has a great deal of, of faith in the outcomes of the IPCC. There's such an incredibly rigorous process that goes into the findings of the IPCC. Can you take us through the enormous work that's involved in compiling these reports? I mean, for instance, roughly how many scientists are involved and how much data gets crunched in, in, in making these reports? Well, in an IPCC assessment cycle, there could well be a thousand scientists uh, intensely involved in the process, directly involved, but many thousands more um, somewhat indirectly involved. So the process starts with a scoping meeting where uh, scientists and others get together to identify what is the content of the next assessment. So each of the working groups has a scoping meeting. Uh, there is a, then a, an approval process from the governments which not only address the, the specific working group reports, that's the big three reports, but also any special reports that come out in a given IPCC cycle. So... In this cycle, we had one on the what was called the 1.5 degrees report. We had on one on the oceans and ice-covered areas of the world. And we also had one on climate change and land. So there's three special reports as well as the uh, major assessment reports. Now, each of those reports has um, multiple periods of, of writing and drafting where the science is put together and then review by other scientists and by governments. And in some cases, there's many tens of thousands of comments uh, coming in from that review process. Each comment has to be addressed with explicitly by the writing teams and signed off by review editors. And so, and that's traceable and trackable. So there's a high degree of accountability in how those review comments are dealt with in the document. And then the final summary for policymakers is uh, negotiated by the governments of the world and the researchers word by word and line by line and paragraph by paragraph. So in the end, what comes out is an agreed assessment of the science, which all governments can take and own. Right. So would it be fair to say that there's literally tens of thousands of scientists who are involved in, in creating these reports? Yeah, lots and lots of scientists, but also many, many government people and also non-government organisations and members of the public who are qualified to actually comment on the IPCC process. And and so what happens is all of that gets put in uh, to the, the sort of big synthesis uh, that an IPCC is uh, and out the other side actually comes something which is incredibly rigorous uh, and, and also, as I said, it's owned by a whole range of different people, it's owned by the research community, owned by governments and owned by the public. And how often do these reports come out? Well, each cycle lasts, roughly speaking, seven years. Uh, at least historically, it's done that. And so uh, we had uh, previous reports in 2013 and 14, um, and before that in 2007, etc., um, that length of that cycle may change because of UN processes, but that's a matter for negotiation. Uh, within each cycle, uh, what we see is, depending on the special reports and the number of those, uh, we'd end up with a report coming out, roughly speaking, on average each two years or slightly less. So in this cycle, seven years, we had uh, 
six major reports um, coming out. So that in this case, this cycle was very busy, so it was almost one report a year on average, but there was a bit of a gap between um, uh, the start of the cycle and the first report. And do, do these reports vary in terms of their focus or are they all very focused on the science itself? Well, increasingly, the science has, has become more inclusive of um, socioeconomic and historical and even philosophical sort of aspects. And so, so it's become much more inclusive of, of how to approach climate change. Uh, it's still structured the way it has been for a long time with a, a big report on the physical science. That's how the climate uh, evolves, how the oceans evolve uh, under climate change. Uh, then there's a report on the impacts of climate change and how we adapt to that. So that's called the Working Group 2 report. And then there's a third report, which is on uh, emission reduction. So that's called the mitigation report. And and by looking at those different components, we can delve deeply into um, the different aspects of climate change. But increasingly, we recognise that there's interactions between those reports. And so we, we try to stitch those reports together. So they're not standalone, but they uh, relate to each other. So the adaptation report will uh, relate to the mitigation report. I see. And Dr. George, how much input do you think Pacific governments have had in these IPCC reports? Thank you. I wanted to go back and sort of say um, IPCC, the reports and the scientists are the unseen heroes uh, unseen heroes of our time. You know, we know that they've been acknowledged as Nobel Peace Prize winners in the past, and their work continues to do so because they are the forecast, the scientists, the information, the sources of information in terms of where the world is heading uh, in terms of uh, the climate change impacts. And by saying that, I wanted to go back to something I said earlier, that uh, although they may not be seen in the public, they are fundamental in the work of governments, uh, universities, um, and policymakers in terms of how we can better adapt, but also how we can uh, fight back in terms of the cause of, of climate change. Now, in terms of uh, IPCC in the Pacific, there have been many um, participants or scientists from the Pacific who have been part of the community of IPCC scientists and some of them are with the University of South Pacific, University of Solomon Islands, and, and some within the Australian National University and universities around Australia. And so there are um, people from the Pacific and studying or researching on the Pacific that have contributed greatly uh, to the six uh, reports within IPCC. The other link of why IPCC are fundamental in the work of uh, Pacific uh, countries you know, Pacific Island countries have been at the forefront of climate action um, in terms of the treaty, in terms of the various protocol, uh, in calling for greater action. And to support these claims by uh, Pacific, uh, Pacific Island states, they need the science. And for the last 30 years, uh, Pacific Island states have partnered with scientists as well as um, pushing for special reports within IPCC to solidify these claims that that the impacts that they're seeing on the ground at the moment will exist, I mean, will continue to uh, compound them in the future. And we saw this uh, in the Oceans Report. We saw this in uh, Special 1.5. These were uh, Pacific Island countries were at the forefront of calling for uh, not only greater action, but also more scientific reports such as, such as these special reports. 
And uh, as why uh, there's also a special chapter on uh, small states within the IPCC. Do you get the sense that there are more Pacific Islanders interested in embarking on a career in science and, and, and wanting to contribute to these sorts of reports? Absolutely. I mean, let's let's not uh, hide from the fact there still is a very low number of um, Pacific uh, scientists. Uh, we have a very uh, small number um, in the STEM. However, uh, the, um, something that uh, Mark has mentioned in terms of incorporating the outside of physical science, uh, science those from philosophy, those from history, those from policy, uh, there is now, uh, I would say, a growing community of uh, uh, Pacific researchers who are now joining in the course. And in fact, some of the, the um, especially around the humanities, the impact of climate change to human behavior, state behavior, community behavior, uh, is very key to current research. Not only impacting the impact on it now, but we are now taking more and more of IPCC and other scientific reports to look at what the Pacific would look like in 30 years' time. It, as Mark has mentioned, it's not great. It's not the world that we want to live in. But unfortunately, it is the reality because of some of the activity that's ongoing at the moment. And so it will be a harsher reality. And to we must not run away from those realities, but look at what policies or action um, at all levels, at state, at regional, community, and individual level, we can uh, uh, we can employ uh, to look into, I mean, to uh, try and adapt to that reality. But that's something that's why the IPCC is very important in terms of uh, providing that future forecast. Within the Pacific region, is there actually a, any kind of scientific body which collects the science that Pacific scientists are producing or... Is there any sort of regional body that's assisting to bring up a generation of Pacific Island scientists? Yeah, there, there are um, bodies within the Pacific. So we've got uh, different groups uh, such as SPC and SPREP, uh, which are, are, I think, preeminent in terms of their uh, bringing together those uh, capacity and the information. Um, but there's also universities um, within the Pacific which, which do that and build the capacity within the Pacific Islands. And, of course, Australia's had a, a very significant role in terms of uh, supporting those and other institutions across the Pacific. So so there is uh, building capacity, but as George says, there's still plenty of room to move on that. Um, in terms of Pacific Island scientists who are directly contributing to the IPCC, I believe there's two or three that have been um, had some involvement. Is that right? There's uh, um, involvement from uh, Marshall Islands uh, and now um, Samoa, I think, uh, um, Morgan's move to uh, Solomon, Solomon, Solomon Islands, and uh, but but previously in Fiji, and and so um, so we see see that that, but but it is it is a small number uh, for a huge area. Um, the the Pacific is one of the biggest um, features on the planet, um, and if you actually look at the density of of contributions, it's small compared with uh, um, you know other other areas such as the, the continents themselves. You mentioned that there were, apart from sort of the, the work that scientists are doing to collate the data, there are other aspects. You even mentioned philosophy and some other areas that are starting to also have some input. Um, I mean, from personal experience, I, I remember being out in the Carteret Atolls off Bougainville, uh, where it's a very pressing need, and having a chief sit on a coconut stump and tell me that when he was a boy, the shoreline, and he 
was able to sort of demonstrate where that was 50, 60 years before. Do you think there's a role for even the oral culture and, 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 and some of that lived experience from the Pacific Island leaders and chiefs having some way to feed into the science as it's accumulated? I mean, is there a role for that oral storytelling from the Pacific to help inform the science? Yeah, absolutely. And and this uh, IPCC assessment, more so than any previous one, has, has profiled Indigenous knowledge and local knowledge uh, in... Uh, so you might think of it as also traditional knowledge and, and local knowledge uh, in the workings of the assessment. One of the constraints, though, is that the IPCC really relies heavily on uh, formal literature. So it's it's papers which are published in journals or uh, government reports and, and things like that. And in many cases, that type of knowledge does not get recorded in that formal sense. And so uh, there are limitations at the moment in terms of how much of that information can get incorporated into assessments like the IPCC. And that's not a comment on the value of that knowledge. It's just the nature of the process um, in which the IPCC is pulled together. And gradually over time that is changing, uh, but it, it is a really important constraint. And, and I think that sort of knowledge is actually really important in the trajectory of the IPCC, which is moving towards more solutions and more integration with other issues. So, for example, in this assessment round, uh, pretty much every report has a linkage between climate change and sustainable development. Um, and so we're trying to link climate change issues into the broader suite of issues that need to be considered for sustainable development. Dr George, is there a role for these sorts of oral stories to go into the way the Pacific is approaching climate change science and communication, importantly? No, it does. I mean, and it's uh, the practice now as well as uh, within um, uh, in the Pacific in terms of uh, people working within the area of um, climate change. Indigenous, traditional and local knowledge is fundamental uh, in terms of actioning. Uh, if we, for lack of a better word, the IPCC, in, in it's something that uh, Mark has mentioned in terms of solutions. It, currently, there are projects in the Pacific that incorporate indigenous knowledge, traditional knowledge, and local knowledge with scientific knowledge, with climate science, uh, to better inform practices. So one uh, example is a, f a project within the Secretariat Regional Environmental Program uh, on uh, meteorology. Uh, and it's infusing not only climate science, which is uh, provided by CSRO and the various meteorology offices around the Pacific, but they are also talking to uh, communities, you know, in terms of what this, uh, you know, um, uh, seasonal uh, calendar are, and incorporating both these knowledges, because that is how climate science is better communicated, that it incorporates Western knowledge and traditional knowledge, that when, um, you know, people at the meteorology are, for, you know, sort of giving out um, weather forecasts, they're not just saying that this, um, say that this is a pattern because of air temperature, high, you know, low and cold air. They're able to say it's coming from the winds from Tonga using traditional names uh, or local names that were given to these winds or that it's a wind that's coming from the Tokelau Islands giving uh, corporate names. By infusing that, people will then understand better um, what these impacts of the uh, wind patterns are uh, to them. But they are also able to practice um, 
community w- uh, ways of, of living in terms of these people have been living in these islands for tens of thousands of years. They have adapted to changing weather patterns. The Pacific is one of the most harshest places to live in terms of the environment, yet these people have survived. And it's incorporating Western science with traditional practices uh, in terms of uh, uh, living within this area of climate change. And so following from that, Dr. George, what, what's your sense of the situation now in terms of where we're at with the physical science? And do you think the Pacific is adapting fast enough? Not enough. Um, uh, as uh, the words, uh, I mean, as uh, Mark mentioned, the more we know, the worse it looks. Uh, in the current research that we're doing, which communicates with Secretary Pacific Community, um, uh, SPRIP, Regional Environmental Program, we're working with governments. The more we know, the uh, you know, it's it's people are going well. What can we do? Uh, well, you know, there's we don't have enough resources, we don't have enough knowledge to, and so part. Of, but that's not a frustration in terms of giving up. It's part of saying what well, we really need to do more research, such as the project we're looking at in terms of climate security. Part of like this endeavor of seeking out for solutions, not only within looking at community practice, local practice, traditional practice but also looking at practices in Africa, practices in South America. You know, part of uh, uh, this uh, inability of being restrained because of the uh, um, conditions that we have is also this fighting spirit of, you know, wanting to innovate, wanting to know more. And that's exactly what IPCC uh, report does. It does. It does give us a very grim outlook of what the future would look like. But it also gives us, um, uh, you know, that uh, time to say, well, we really need to do something about it now in terms of our mitigation, in terms of how we, we, we're living in, uh, today, but also in terms of solutions. What can we look for in the future? And that can be the solutions are within uh, our communities, are within uh, Pacific states. But it's also through sharing of knowledge. Uh, not only from here in Australia, but also knowledge in other areas in the world, uh, in Africa, Latin America. And that's uh, the bright side of, uh, of the situation that we're in, that uh, we can uh, foresee that it's not going to look good, but it is also an area of great innovation. And something that IPC talks about is in the area of transformation, uh, new systems, uh, new ways of living. Professor Howden, how has the IPCC as a body evolved over time? And can we be reasonably sure about the findings and the accuracy that goes into these reports? Uh, thanks, Ben. Look, of course, these bodies do evolve, and they evolve in response to various pressures and, and opportunities. When I first engaged with the IPCC back in 1990, it was it was a pretty much a, a bit of a sideshow. You know, like there wasn't a lot of government attention paid to climate change, and certainly not to things like emission reduction and greenhouse gas inventories, which was what I first started out um, in the IPCC doing. and uh, But over a period of time, as climate change has become much more central to uh, international relationships, international politics, geopolitics, um, in relation to the science and our understanding of how the world works, and, and also in terms of the public debate, uh, there's been a lot more pressure and expectation and focus put on the IPCC as an entity. And and that's resulted in uh, a series of what I think are actually pretty good improvements there. 
So, so there's been significant improvements in terms of uh, the systematic approach uh, which has been used uh, right through from the scoping to the delivery of the, of the product. And that, that's about the review process. Um, systematic improvements in the transparency of that review process. So uh, the pulling uh, review editors into the process and documentation of how each review comment has been responded to and sign off by the review editors of that. And there's been a systematic change in terms of the composition of the uh, assessment report, the scientists involved. Um, I mentioned before how as, as sort of uh, much more inclusive of social science and historical science and uh, traditional local knowledge and uh, understanding the um, development trajectories and the politics of of climate change responses. And so there's been uh, a significant change in the composition in an expertise sense, uh, pulling in a lot more people from the developing world. So the, the imbalance between developed and developing countries has improved. Uh, and similarly, in terms of gender, so there's there's been significant improvements in the gender composition of the of the teams. So in many ways, what what has happened is that IPCC is now both more robust, uh, but it's also more representative than it used to be. So a lot more diversity in terms of nationalities and, and scientists. Indeed, and that, and that it's still, of course, uh, in imbalances there. And we talked before about Pacific uh, um, representation or involvement in the IPCC author teams. And, and that will improve over time because it's not as though we don't recognise that. It's just that there are sometimes constraints in terms of uh, getting the right people onto the right part of the IPCC. Dr George, do you think there's much division within the Pacific community around the science of climate change? Or do you think there's broad consensus now that it is real and a growing threat to Pacific island life? Oh, no, there's, there's, no, uh, there's no disagreement. Um, you know... <clears throat> As um, uh, the science is telling us, uh, the forecast in the future is not going to look great, but it also tell, it tells us now it's not great. Um, and so, um, yes, it's, it's a fundamental part of uh, Pacific society today. Now, Professor Howden, let's talk briefly about the work you're doing with ISEDS here at ANU. What was the motivation to create this umbrella group and uh, what, what do you hope to achieve? Well, there was a, a particular window of opportunity to do this integration where we brought together uh, previous institutes of climate change, uh, energy change and disaster risk science and bring them into one umbrella, uh, which allows us not only uh, to uh, look more at the interactions between these factors, uh, but also to increase the uh, critical mass of, of researchers and research capacity. Uh, and when I talk about the interactions, uh, rather than climate change being seen as separate from, say, energy change or disaster risk, we're increasingly seeing those as interlinked. Um, and to go back to the example of the Canadian heat waves and North American heat waves, uh, yes, uh, we can see the climate change element there. We can clearly see the disaster risk and disaster, disaster risk management element there. Uh, but we can also see the energy change element. So energy is both... Uh, affected by um, those events through um, heat waves knocking out coal-fired power stations um, and things like that. 
but also um, that energy uh, consumption patterns impact on the environment. So, for example, uh, power lines which sag and, and start fires. And so, so we can see that there's multiple linkages between the energy, the climate, the climate and the disaster, and the disaster energy. Um, so there's linkages between all of those three. And so what we're looking to do is, is have much more integrated research which acknowledges those interlinkages. And in many ways, what that does is it makes that research more important because it's actually more relevant to the things that are going on in the real world. And Dr. George, just tell us briefly about some of the work you're doing with DPA uh, and the Pacific Institute. I believe you're also uh, focused on potential scenarios around climate change, how the Pacific's going to look at 1.5 compared to, to 3 degrees. Um, what what kind of work are you personally sort of invested in there? Um, so I'll speak professionally about the Pacific Institute. Uh, it brings together uh, more than 200 uh, scholars in ANU, not just within the College of Asia Pacific, but within the Australian National University, that work in or on the Pacific who have some form of research. Uh, and they range from the humanities to people working uh, within uh, the College of Business and uh, Entrepreneurship, uh, uh, Economics, uh, people working in uh, climate science. So it brings together everyone. Uh, it's a community uh, here in ANU. But at the Department of Pacific Affairs, we are an interdisciplinary research unit that uh, uh, bringing together, especially in the humanities area of uh, international relation, politics, anthropology, history, policy, and uh, we research uh, broad themes of state governance um, and society within the Pacific. Uh, with a strong focus on Melanesia, but also wider Pacific. And a particular area I look at is in terms of uh, geopolitics and regionalism. Uh, the new research that I'm looking at in terms of climate security, before I looked at climate change negotiations and how Pacific countries uh, interact in uh, global and regional climate change uh, negotiations, I now also, uh, with this new research looking at climate security, uh, looks at these projections of what the Pacific would look like uh, in scenarios in uh, 20, uh, uh, 30 and 50 years now. Um, look at the current science and what it says of what the Pacific would look like. And then I engage in participatory research with regional organizations and national governments to say, here's the science, this is what it's saying, what needs to be done now to, um, uh, and so in this action research, we look at trying to find um, you know, uh, some forms of solution or policy work that uh, secures not only the regional uh, region, uh, but also states, uh, communities is very important to the research that incorporates indigenous and local knowledge uh, in these solutions, but also uh, at the individual level. So this is an ongoing uh, new research, and that's why, um, you know, as, as part, as what I said in the beginning, why scientific uh, bodies like the IPCC and their reports are fundamental to this uh, research um, in sort of, you know, in, in ways of contributing back to communities back in the Pacific. Well, that's great to hear the work that you're both doing and, and the role of the IPCC. Um, and I think this has been a, a good introduction, shall we say, to, to the work of the IPCC and certainly some of the work you're doing. Many thanks to both our guests today, Professor Mark Howden and Dr. George Carter, for a very timely chat around the urgency to take action on climate change. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ben. That wraps up another episode of the Pacific Wayfinder. You can find us on our website, pacificsecurity.net, 
and our Facebook page for the Australia Pacific Security College. Our theme music is the song Tabaran by Not Drowning Waving. And thanks to Liam Taylor for producing this episode. I'm Ben Bohane. Tune in next time to the Pacific Wayfinder.